First Peter chapter three. <clears throat> Why don't we stand just to change positions a moment here? Again, it's good. It's cold and a little stiff. And tonight, uh, make sure you bundle up and just uh, bring some things. You, even for the children, if there's any children coming, bring their pajamas, whatever, so that when they go home. But make sure they're bundled up huh, if they come out to the game tonight. But First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, I'd like to read those as we begin. To sum up. All of you, all of you, excuse me, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Our Father in God, again, we are so thankful for this reminder that you gave us of communion thankful for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We are grateful that you've given us voices to sing praises to your name and the ability to have jobs and be able to participate in our worship and giving. Thank you for those that are ministering to the children right now. And Father, we're so grateful for the word of God. Help us to remember that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Help us to remember that it's living and powerful. And I pray that it would accomplish its work in each one of our lives right now. You know the needs of everyone in here, and we pray that you would penetrate our hearts and minds. Help us, Lord, to hear from you and to be able to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Commit our study of the word of God to you now and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I've entitled this morning's message right out of the text, Do You Desire Life and to See Good days. I will come back to that title in a few moments. Peter has progressed through the book of First Peter as we have been going through it, and he has been dealing with, to put it in context, that we are heavenly citizens. We are foreigners, we are strangers, we are the true aliens. And as aliens, we still have a life to live. We're still here on earth. We're not there in heaven with the Lord yet. We just partook of communion as a reminder of what the Lord has done, where we're going, what will happen, but we're still here and we're to live. And as we come into chapter 3, particularly verses 8 and 9, as we looked at them last time together, Peter addressed our behavior among believers. Remember, he's already dealt with slaves, he's dealt with wives, and he's dealt with husbands, and now he's been dealing with our behavior among believers, among the body of Christ. And he used five adjectives in verses 8 through 9 that we already covered, and just look at them as I <coughs> highlight them. Uh, excuse me, today. He's used these adjectives to try to describe the way we should behave with one another. We should be harmonious. And we saw that, that was we ought to be of the same mind. We ought to have a look at the big picture of the body of Christ and not be so focused in on ourselves, our ministry. As important as those things are, it is part of a big picture. And when we lose track of that, 
it affects the way the body of Christ functions. So we are to be of the same mind. We are to be sympathetic. We are to share feelings. This is very practical. We are to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Just because I didn't receive something or have something, if somebody else has something to rejoice about, as a believer, we should be rejoicing with them. When they are weeping, we should be weeping with them. We should feel that pain. We should feel that sorrow. So that's what he meant by sharing the feelings of being sympathetic. And obviously, brotherly love. We saw how Peter, throughout the book, has just been talking about this. That it's to be a sincere love, not indifference. Oftentimes in the body of Christ, we can have indifference towards things that happen or things that are going on because if we, we take everything personal and we don't really share that love and sincere love that we should have one for another. So it should be sincere, not phony, not surface. Kind-hearted. Uh, more than just the surface, it is to go into the deep. And we went into really what that means is the bowels, right into the depth of our heart. So we should have this feeling toward one another that it's more than just on the surface. It really uh, has a feeling for the body of Christ and what he has done. And it ended with humility or humble. And that is, again, we had to put others first above even our own interests. And that is not a real easy thing to do in a practical sense. That was verse 8. Verse 9, he dealt with the responses. How do we respond? And as believers among the body of Christ, how do we respond specifically to adverse circumstances? We all have them. And we'll hear that again today. There is not a one of us in this room that does not have adverse circumstances from time to time. How do we respond in those adverse circumstances? It should not be evil for evil. It should not be insult for insult. And in reality... If we're honest, all of us, starting with me, the tendency is to repay evil for evil, to get back, to try to make people feel what we felt, to, if we get insulted, think of how we can give a worse insult about them or to them. That's human nature. But that is not the way that the body of Christ is to behave. On the contrast to that, rather, we saw in verse 9, it is to be blessing. And what is that? We are to speak well. We are to praise others. That is to be on our lips. Even when we are mistreated, we are to respond with praise. Praise for what God has done in other people's lives. And probably the most biblical example that I can think of to me in the New Testament, and there are many others, but as an as a overwhelming one is the book of Corinthians. To see all of the problems that were going on in that church. And Paul starts off with praising that assembly. Praising them because he never forgot that they came to Christ. He never forgot what God had done in their life and what it meant. And then he went on to deal with the problems and how to face them and how to, to get through them. Because in the reality, we face those things. So even he had praise in that situation. And the reason we see at the end of verse 9, and this is where we left off where he says, for you were called for this very purpose. The reason we ought to respond in such a way that does not behave with evil for evil, but blessing instead, is because we've been called to inherit a blessing. That's us. As believers, what do we inherit? Does God continuously criticize us for what we do? Does he insult us? Not at all. He's provided forgiveness. He's provided no condemnation, as we've just been talking about. He's provided eternal life. And we inherit all the blessings that come with being a member of the body of Christ. 
And since we have that, that's how we ought to respond because we represent Christ. Now today we come to verses 10 to 12. And as we come to verses 10 to 12, I want you to understand that there's really two things here. One, it is support. He's going to give scriptural support for what he's been teaching. But beyond that, and you want to catch this part of it, in verses 10 to 12, he's also giving application to the way God works. Because in this quotation out of the Old Testament, and in his scriptural support, he's using the life of David and showing us how David was able to be successful in the midst of difficulty. And his purpose of giving it to the people that he's writing to, the believers that were scattered who were aliens, is because they were suffering. They were facing difficulty. And he wanted them to see the practical application to their life that God is faithful and God will deliver them and God will provide for them. So let's get into the passage, verses 10 to 12. And let me ask you a question a little differently than the title I gave it. Let's have a show of hands. Who does not desire life and to see good days? Anybody? Is there anyone here that does not desire life and does not desire to see good days? As I studied the passage, I said, who would not want to desire that, right? But I have to go further. What does that mean? What does it mean when we say we desire life or we desire good days? What does it mean to us? And what does it mean to God? That's important for us to think about. And let's be honest. If somebody would have come up to me and said, well, don't you desire life and to have good days? Yeah, sure I do. And what is usually in my thinking? Maybe I'm different from you. Maybe I am really an alien of aliens. But what would be my thinking if somebody came up to me? i tell you what it would be. Yeah, I, I hope I don't have any problems. Yeah, I hope I don't face any suffering yeah, I want good days. I want everything to go peaceful. I don't want any arguing with my children. I don't want any arguing with my grandchildren. I never want to have an argument with my wife. I hope everybody in the church is just going to love me to death, and I'm going to love them. Yeah, oh, I love life and good days. That's what I think. When I think of good days, I think just peace, happiness, everything goes smooth. Any of you ever think that way? Nobody wants to be honest? <laughs> okay, we do, right? We do. We, we want that, all right? But in the context of what he's saying here, we have to understand this, that he's talking to people who are facing hardship. He's talking to people who are facing suffering. They know what it's like. So when he's talking about good days in life, he's not talking about life free from pain. He's not talking about life free from difficulties. In order to do that, you'd have to leave the world. You would. So it's not that, it wouldn't be practical for you to be saying that. He's not saying that, look, you become a believer and everything goes away. Far from it. Oftentimes things get very difficult. And he's going to go to Psalm 34. That's why I read it this morning. And it's interesting, in this particular book, by the way, if I have it correct in looking at it and studying, this is the largest quote in the book of First Peter. This is the biggest quote that he uses throughout this small epistle. And it's from Psalm 34. And David was suffering. If you remember the psalm that I read it, as I read it this morning. David was suffering and he was crying out and he says, And the Lord delivered me out of my trials and my tribulations. 
You see, David felt like a person with no strength. I can't take it anymore. That's what he says. He was a, a, a situation that he was running for his life. He was in a situation that he knew a desertion was, he knew what the family was like to, to not have things going right in his kingdom. And he was suffering and pain. And what did he say over and over in that psalm? He said, in the midst of that, God delivered him. God gave him strength. God was his refuge. God was his encouragement. And I would encourage you, every one of you, to read Psalm 34 and really meditate on it. Because I've shared that psalm many, many times with people who are going through some difficult situations. Because it isn't just for David. God is our refuge. And he doesn't say the suffering will go, but our strength and our encouragement will come from him. And what about these good days? And, and what about life? Well, we'll explain that in a minute. And the point of Peter using this for those in a practical situation long after David was off the scene was to show them that if God delivered David and David in the midst of his trials could trust God even when things were difficult and get victory, you can too. You can do it. With God's help, even in the difficult situations, even though things might be going haywire, if you continue to find your refuge in God and go to God, he's going to show you that God's listening. And God is there for the righteous, and he's watching over, and he will help you. And he will give you strength. And he wants them to see this practical application. You see, let me give you the, the bottom line right away before we go through it. When you talk about the good days, what are really the good days? You want to know what they are? Listen carefully. For the believer, the good days are the days that are enjoyed when we are in fellowship with the Lord. Bottom line, those are the good days. That is why Stephen, when he was dying, he was in the good days because he saw the Lord and he said, Lord, forgive them. How could he do that? He was living the good life. He understood what it was like to take that refuge in God, even in the midst of death. He understood that it starts with knowing the Lord. That's the new birth. Where does life and where do the good days start? I can tell you from personal testimony, it started with me when I trusted in Christ. To know that I was forgiven. I had life with God. I had eternal life. No matter what I had done, and listen carefully, when you come to Christ and place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, what is that? Jesus Christ, God, very God, came to this world, took on flesh. This was God with us. But he grew as a man. And he went to the cross. Why? Because sin had separated us from God. And there was no way to get it back because none of us are righteous. No, not one. So he sent his son out of his love. And he came and he went to the cross, died on the cross to satisfy the righteous judgment on sin, which is death and separation from God. Jesus Christ suffered that. And then he died and he rose again the third day. And God was satisfied with that work. And so now by placing faith in that work and that worth alone, 
We can be restored to fellowship with God. We can have access to God. We can have eternal life through faith in that work alone. And only by faith. And that's where life begins. And David understood his God. That's where it starts. And life in its fullness and its enjoyment, even for you as a believer and for me as a believer, continues when we walk with him. When we walk with him. And I can testify personally that even going through some struggles in my own life, with my children's lives, in my family with my sisters when they, when they passed from this world, in very difficult times, the joy that I still had in my heart was because I stayed in fellowship with the Lord through those things. And I could literally sit at the side of my son's bed knowing that he potentially was going to die and have full confidence in my God. Those were good days, as difficult as it was. You see, we need to understand that when he talks, who, does, who wants good days in life? We all do, but what does it mean in God's eyes? It means to know him. It means to walk with him, and you can have that in spite of all the circumstances that come your way. But you can only have it when you know him and you're in fellowship with him. And that's why he's using this passage. And he gives a series of imperatives. And I want you to understand, this is not a list for salvation. When he talks about, and notice how he started it. That's why he started that message that way. The one who desires life and to love and see good days. Who doesn't want to do that? Of course. And then he goes on. He's talking to the believers and he's using Psalm 34. And when he gives this list, when he talks about must keep his tongue, and I'll get to that in a minute. This is not a list for salvation. Salvation is just as I explained. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ, and in all cases, alone. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. According to John chapter 1, verse 12, that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have the privilege to be called the children of God. And you talk about abundant life, it'd probably be worth looking at this. Go with me to John chapter 10 just for a minute. John chapter 10. Keep your finger, we're coming right back. Because when you talk about good life and you talk about life, let's see what the scriptures say. It's talking about abundant life. And in John chapter 10, I'll go back and read verses 9 and 10. It was Jesus that said this, I am the door. That's who he is. That's who he said he is. I'm the door. You want to know how to get into the gates of heaven? It's not a matter of having Peter at the pearly gates and checking off a list to see if you were good or bad and letting you in. It doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work with angels. Christ is the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Saved, saved for what? I don't need salvation. Yes, you do. If you don't know Christ, you need salvation because you're lost in sin. It's not a matter whether you're a sinner. It's a matter whether you'll trust by faith in Christ. We're all sinners. But we can be saved by going through the door. And notice this, you'll go in and out and find good pasture. The thief comes to steal and to destroy. Watch this. I came that they may have what? Life. You desire life? <coughs> Where do we get it? Through Christ. And watch this. And have it abundantly. How many times have we quoted that verse? That's the idea of good days. The abundant life happens. Why? By coming to Christ and by walking in fellowship with him. That's where the good days are. That's where the 
abundant life is. So how is it maintained? It starts by coming to Christ. It's maintained by walking with God. And that's the point. That is when you will enjoy life. When you see God working in your life and when you know him. I should reverse that. First of all, when you know him and then when you see him working. Let's be honest. There's been times in my life I've been in my office and said, God, you know, what, what am I doing? Am I doing, is this wrong? I've just been down. I just don't see what God's doing. And then there's other times when I just see God blessing my personal life, my family life, the church life. And then what it is, it's just the joy. That's the abundant life. So maybe you've been a little dry. Be honest with yourself. Just come back to your walk with Christ. That's all. As a believer, I'll come to Christ. So it's not a list that he's giving here for salvation. Peter is giving practical imperatives of what should be reflected. Why? Because there's still a tendency, even as a believer, when things are difficult, not to do what he's going to talk about in these imperatives. What are they? The first one is, he says, you must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is a direct quotation out of Psalm 34. Direct quotation. And he's using that. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. That's what we should do. Even in trials, it's not easy. We need to watch our tongue. Verbal retaliation, verbal abuse, harsh comments, gossip, it only destroying somebody's reputation. It is so easy to do. None of us want to have it done to us. And we're quick to do it to somebody else. And he's telling. Why? Because these believers could have that tendency. You want to enjoy life. You will not. You know what? When you're making comments like that and you're using your tongue wrong, you know it in your heart and God, who we're going to see in the context, who sees all, he knows it and you're miserable. You're making the comments, but you're the one that's miserable. Because you know you shouldn't be doing it. And we use our tongues that way. Go with me to James chapter 1. It's right nearby. James chapter 1. It's just a book before Peter. James 1. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, you talk to any believers, oh yeah, I know the Lord, I'm walking with the Lord, and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. Wow. You can't control your tongue. The only one you're fooling, or I am fooling, is me. No one else. And you say you're walking with the Lord, and you can't control your tongue? You don't think that's powerful enough? Turn to James chapter 3. I won't deal with verses 1 and 2. It talks about teachers. Very, very powerful statement about teachers. But I want you to pick it up in verse 3. Now, if we put bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great, some of you have taken cruises, right? Great ships and are driven by strong winds are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. We understand that. So also is the tongue. It is a small part of the body. Yes, it is. And yet it boasts great things, boasts of great things. See how great a forest 
is set aflame by such a small fire. Do you know that most of the gossip and most of the problems that we have is because of the tongue? And I'm being very serious in what I say here, because you could joke about it for a second here. But that's what the media has done to the United States of America. I am amazed at how, and probably all of us, starting right here, sometimes I hear something on the media and they bring something up. I never check out the details, never try to find whether or not it's true or not, and we all believe it. And honestly, folks, that's where deflate football came from. I'm serious. I didn't mean, and that's why I say you might think it's a joke. No. But everyone is believing everything because someone started talking. And we do the same thing as Christians. Did you know? Did you hear that this and that did what? And oh, yeah. And all of a sudden, our tongue is running, 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 and a fire has started. And we're at the center of it. That's what he says. Tongue's a fire. It's a world of iniquity, verse 6. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It sets on fire the course of life. And because of time, let me just jump down a little bit further to what he says. Look at, look at down to verse 10. From the same mouth, both blessing and cursing. One minute we're saying, praise the Lord. Next minute we're condemning believers. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. And I should have gone back to verse 9. With our mouths, we what? Bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men and we forget that they've been made in the image and likeness of God. You know, even an unbeliever. I may not agree with them, and I should tell them that or whatever, but I have to still respect that that's a human being made in the image and likeness of God. My tongue doesn't operate with my brain too well that way. I don't know about yours. And it's interesting because back in 1 Peter, remember who the example was before we got to chapter 3? The Lord Jesus Christ. He set the example when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He never retaliated. He took it, and he didn't deserve it, and he kept his mouth shut as a lamb to the slaughter for the likes of you and me. Our mouth should bring praise to God. Our mouth should bring healing to the hearer. I've already gone into Ephesians with you, but again, think about this. I need to think about this. When I'm talking, does what I'm saying Render grace to those that are hearing it. Is it what is needed for the moment? Is it going to edify and build up? If it's not, shut your mouth. I'm talking to me. It's a good lesson. You may laugh at this, but I tell you why. I tell you who I'm quoting from. Actually, it's Thumper. Have any of you ever seen the movie Bambi? Thumper, well, his mother's talking to Thumper, and he says, uh, What did your father tell you? If you got nothing good to say, then say nothing at all. He was right. If you don't have anything good to say, shut up. I'm talking to me. We should. And it isn't that you can't speak out against something, but it's the way we do things, folks. And Peter's saying that, look, you want to enjoy your walk with the Lord in the midst of those trials, use your tongue right. Don't retaliate, because when you do, you think I'm comfortable. You're going to know you're not right. I need to move on. Secondly, he says, turn from evil and do good. He doesn't just say turn from evil, but he says turn and then do good. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, I'm going to read that to you quick. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, Communion Sunday is always a challenge with the time. 
But in verse 22, listen, he says this, abstain from every form of evil, and that's important to hear. A lot of Christians misquote that verse because of the old translation of abstain from every appearance of evil, and the idea they think is, if it doesn't look good, then I got to, no, abstain from every kind of evil. If it's evil, take away, get away from it. Not just what it looks like. In fact, we're supposed to judge righteous judgment and not judge by the surface. It's just the opposite. So we, we need to understand that what even Paul was telling the Thessalonians is, if it's evil, turn away. Turn away from it. And speaking of the Thessalonians, it was in chapter 1, verse 9 of Thessalonians that Paul commended them. They turned to God from idols. See, they turned away from evil. They turned to the living God. And he, here he says, turn away from that which is evil. All too often as Christians, we try to get as close as we can to sin. That's dangerous. Would you want your children walking on the side of a mountain as close to the edge as possible, hoping they don't fall? I remember when we went to the Grand Canyon as a, a local assembly last year, and we went up. For those that went to Angel's Up Angel's uh, Landing, there were some spots that... I personally walked on the inside. <laughs> you know, you look down, whoo, <laughs> straight down, folks. You know, and, uh, and I saw some people on that mountain that were petrified. I didn't see them getting close to the edge. Sometimes as Christians, it's, uh, let me, it's okay, I'm okay. I, no. He says, run, turn away from it. And that's what he said. You want to have a, a, a walk as a believer. Turn away from evil and concentrate on doing that which is good. Here we are again as a congregation. Here we are again in the word of God. There is a place for good works. We should be involved of all people as Christians involved in good works. Not for salvation, but because of being saved. The Lord behaved that way. The apostles behaved that way. They didn't deserve what they got. But they were still kind because God was using that. We know the story even in the Old Testament of Joseph and all that he faced and later on saw what God had done. We need to understand that we are to be representing God and turning away from evil. You know, I'm studying right now the book of Isaiah. I just finished it in the school with the students, 11th and 12th graders. In the first chapter, Israel got bombarded by the Lord. You know why? They were going through all types of religious activities. They were bringing the sacrifices. They were doing, going to church, if you will. It wasn't church. It was, they were going to the meeting, doing what God wanted. And God says, I'm sick and tired of it. You know why? Because they were doing injustice in their lives. Because their lives didn't represent what they were supposed to be representing. And they were nothing but hypocrites. And you know what? Sometimes unbelievers, it's not a good excuse, but they'll say, I don't want to be a Christian because they're a bunch of hypocrites. You know what, folks? We are many times. Our lives don't line up. And some of it breaks down right here. It breaks down with our tongue. It breaks down with the fact that we don't turn away from evil. We don't do good. And certainly we don't do the next one. What is that? Seek peace. We ought to seek it with all our life. We ought to look for it. When you're seeking something, and that's why he says pursue it, we ought to put our energy into it. We're talking about a football game, and everybody, those players are going to be putting all their energy into winning. We should be putting all of our energy into, in every situation that comes up personally and locally, into pursuing peace. 
How is this going to bring peace if I continue to say what I'm saying? How is this continue to bring peace if I continue to do what I'm doing? How is what that person is doing bringing peace? And if I jump on the bandwagon, how am I going to bring peace? We ought to be pursuing that. Listen to this from Romans just uh, quickly. If you want to turn there, you can. Romans chapter 12, two verses I'll look at. Romans 12, 18. If not, you can listen. You got a computer, you're already there. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's pretty strong. As much as I can, I am to live at peace with all men. Now, I can't change what somebody else thinks, but I can pursue that. Then in Romans chapter 14, same book, as he goes through the list of things, we come down to this. So that in verse 19, he says, So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That's a good guideline. It's a good guideline. Even when I'm suffering, when, I, when I'm facing persecution, when I'm facing trials and circumstances, when things don't go my way, if, if I want to have a joyous life, what I do is say, Lord, this is uncomfortable. David said that. I am troubled. I, I am in difficult situations, but I'm coming to you for refuge. Help me. And help me to pursue peace even in this situation. When I want to react with retaliation, God, you give me the grace not to. When I want to say what I shouldn't say, you give me the grace not to do that. When I want to react with evil, help me to do good. I can only do that in God's power. But if we have in our mind being a peacemaker, let me ask that of you and of me. Are we more a peacemaker or a building destroyer? Let's answer that for ourselves. We should be pursuing peace. We should be pursuing it with all our energy in every circumstance. By the way, 2 Thessalonians, let me read that one to you also. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, listen to this. Verse 16, Paul says, May now the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Wow. You mean I can have peace in trials? Yes. You mean I should pursue peace in the midst of trials? Yes. That's why Peter's saying this. You want to have a joyous life, it, it comes by fellowship with God, which means I don't use my tongue wrong, which means I turn away from evil, which means I pursue peace. And why is that? Very quickly, here's the reason, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. That's pretty strong. What is it? The, uh, God knows everything that's going on. But take it positive. Just that's his, that's his intent. Do you think that the Lord lost track of the fact that you're suffering? Let's be honest. Sometimes we do. I wonder if the Lord really knows what's going on in my life. I, I wonder if the Lord just doesn't understand I can't take anymore. Yes, he does. Cry out to him. But I've been crying out to him. So have refuge in him, even when I don't have the answer. What do I do? Rest in him. That's what David had to do. Job had to do the same thing. He didn't deserve that. He didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. In Hebrews chapter 4, we know verse 12, many of us. But listen to what it says. In the very, let me read those two verses. Hebrews 4, first of all, verse 12, the one that we know. It says in that verse that the word of God is living 
and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we know that. The word of God, that's why we preach it because that's what really gets to our heart. But listen to verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Not only is the word of God penetrating, and that's what he uses, but God himself. We don't hide anything from him. We can hide it from others and try to deceive our own heart. But the Lord knows. But again, he means it as encouragement. When things are hard, when things are difficult, don't react wrong, still rest in the Lord. Why? Because the contrast to that is his face, or the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Don't think for one minute, just because you're a believer, that there's no relevance to the way you behave. There is. That's the point of the passage. Our behavior matters to God. That's the point of Peter's message. Peter's message is when we're talking about one another, we ought to do the things of verses 8 and 9. We ought to really pursue those things among the body. And we're not to react in the negative way. Why? Because our behavior matters to God. God's grace in our life has a lot of relevance to the way we behave. If you want God's blessing in your life, is his point, then you'll do what's right. And you'll trust in God because God sees. He knows. He cares. You really believe that? Do we really understand that? Sometimes we think, we're honest. There's been times I've thought that. Does God really care? Does he really understand? Yes, he does. So much so that he sent his own son. He knows what it's like to send the very one to come himself and die for sin. Pastor Chris quoted it out of Romans. Even for enemies, for those who hate him, and still show kindness. While we're yet sinners, without hope, enemies of God, Christ died for us. He knows what he's talking about. And he calls us to do the same. In the midst of trials, to have proper behavior, to guard our tongue, to pursue peace. I guarantee you that if I do this and you do this in your personal lives, you're going to experience a life of joy. And as a church, it will boom. Because the church of Jesus Christ worldwide is known more for division than it is for peace. That's the truth. But if we make it a point to start with me, one by one, and pursue peace in walking with God, you'll find that others get attracted to Christianity. And then they're going to want to know the God that you know so that then they can experience life and joy the real way that you're experiencing it and that I'm experiencing it. May God help us to understand that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you so much for the word of God. I thank you it's powerful. Thank you, Father, it's convicting to my own heart. Of course, even as believers, we know we have life, but it is our desire to have good days. Help us to see that we can even have good days in the midst of trials when we're trusting you, when we're doing what we should be doing. Father, I pray as Peter was charging these believers to guard their tongue, to turn away from evil, to 
turn to peace and, and seek it and pursue it. Help us to do the same. Help us among the body of Christ to be so sensitive to the fact that you died for one another. Help us to rejoice that we can look at an audience like this and see that God has saved us. That, Father, we will spend all eternity rejoicing together. But while we're here on planet Earth, help us to represent you well. Help us to be faithful. Lord, we're weak. David was weak and sorry, but he took his refuge in you. And help us to do the same. Help us even when we're down and depressed and discouraged and think that you're not watching over us. Help us to remember that your ears are open up to our cry. Your eyes do see. And Lord, give us the strength. As the apostle said, give us, Father, help our unbelief. Help our faith that we might be stronger. And we ask this in Jesus' name.